All right, good morning, friends. Let's um, get started today by pulling out our hymnal. I'm not going to make you sing, but I'm going to ask you to pray some psalms with me on 839 of your hymnal, page 839 on the bottom. Our appointed psalms for yesterday, for Saturday, were Psalms 147 to 150, so we'll do, we'll do 147 and 148, and these are already marked out for us um, so we can pray them responsively. I will pray the first part of um, the unbolded part, and y'all will respond with the bolded section. Of course, uh, this section of the Psalter, as the Psalter concludes, is all about uh, praising the Lord, and in that way is, is absolutely a great, uh, appropriate um, psalms for the Lord's Day in particular. Psalm 147, praise the Lord. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. The Lord sustains the humble but casts the wicked to the ground. He covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain and makes grass grow on the hills. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of a man. Extol the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. He grants peace to your borders and satisfies you with the finest of wheat. He spreads the snow like wool and scatters the frost like ashes. He sends his word and melts them. He stirs up his breezes and the waters flow. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. In Psalm 148, praise the Lord. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his heavenly hosts. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. He set them in place forever and ever. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all ocean depths. You mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars. Kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all rulers on earth. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. He, ra he has raised up a people for his people a horn, 
the praise of all his saints, of Israel, the people close to his heart. Amen. Praise the Lord. In a little while, about an hour, we'll sing All Creatures of Our God and King as our opening hymn this morning, which obviously is drawn from uh, these psalms, especially Psalm 148. And um, it's such a wonderful picture these psalms give of how um, when we gather to worship God, we are actually joining in with the praise of all creation for their maker, for their creator, um, for the one who was promised um, to renew all of his creation. It's a beautiful image. It's interesting, um, even as we think about the fourth commandment, um, the, the way in which livestock are not forgotten, um, that, that you are to give not only rest to your servants and your maidservants, but also to your livestock as well. It's, it's just a wonderful picture of the way in which the Lord um, loves what he has made, and he has set human beings as the head of that. That's why we, in a sense, lead all of creation in worship of our maker. That's what we do every Lord's Day. Let me pray for us now as we begin. Father, thank you for this day, this Lord's Day. Thank you for the opportunity to gather um, together, um, not only to worship in about an hour, but also um, to spend this time this morning in studying your word and the Ten Commandments specifically. I pray that you would grant us wisdom as we think about the first commandment in particular, and that you would um, help us to, to meditate well, to use this time well, that it might be fruitful in our lives. Um, by your Spirit's help, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Um, the other thing I was going to say is, as we're doing these psalms together um, each Sunday morning for Sunday school, um, just wanted you to know that we just are concluding the Psalter um, yesterday um, in our church reading. So if you have interest in praying through the Psalter, um, Monday's a great day to do it because we're going to start right back at the beginning and pray Psalms 1 through 5. So keep that in mind. Um, I think it's such a wonderful discipline and habit for us spiritually to learn uh, to pray the Psalms together and in our families and as individuals. So we commend that to you. Um, before we get started and jump into new content today, uh, are there any um, questions about, um, well, first, any questions about sermon stuff that we've covered recently? Just concluded a three sermon series on the Lord's Day. Anything that was particularly helpful, anything that was challenging, anything that was confusing you'd like clarification on? Any comments you want to make or questions that you have? Anybody? Any ways that you're trying to apply this in your lives? What we've talked about? Anything at all? Yes, Kathina. I appreciate that. Thanks for sharing that. I'm glad. That certainly makes me encourages the pastor to hear people wrestling with um, what they hear on Sunday mornings and trying to put that into practice. Thank you for sharing that. I'm grateful. And I think what you'll find as you do that is that it will be, there might be some initial discomfort, but I really do believe that this is a good way to live. Um, it's good for us. It actually nourishes our souls and our bodies in ways that we need um, because God made us that way. So I appreciate that, Kathina. Anything else on the Lord's Day? Yeah, Ben. 
Yeah, there are all sorts of parallels, right, with nutrition and sleep and, um, yeah, just the idea of rest being something deeper than just sort of clicking our mind off for an hour or two or three or whatever it might be. And I think it is really important for us to be, this part of what it means to be wise. Um, Jesus tells us to be as shrewd as serpents, and I think part of that is understanding the culture that we live in, right, Um, and the way in which... I mean, it's, it is very interesting, right, just the way that we are encouraged to think of ourselves primarily in economic terms, I think, as human beings, largely in our society, that we, are, we produce economic output. Um, you know, that's like what we do. That's what our kids, you know, when we think about college, like they need to go learn so they can produce something, um, you know, economically for themselves and their family and ultimately for the society. And, you know, so you work, 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 you're an economic producer, and then um, when you're tired from your work, well, guess what? There's a whole industry that has provided, has wonderful entertainment options for you to, you know, to turn off your, your economic output and sort of, you know, receive someone else's work, so to speak. And it's just, it's just interesting the way that our society, our society encourages, even by the way that rest is um, manufactured for us and offered to us, largely through screens and entertainments. It enc- I think it encourages this kind of addiction to work that I talked about, um, which is a very different way of it's a very different way of living, and it's, a, it's a actually a very particularly modern way of living. Um, and I think we'd be wise to think about that. I think some of the men that went on the men's retreat the last you know, Friday night and through Saturday afternoon, I think you all experienced a little bit of like, what is it like to unplug from that system um, for a little bit? And that's, that's what I want you to see is that's what's offered to you every Lord's Day, the opportunity to, um, to, to opt out, right? Um, because it's, li- it's kind of crazy, and it's... I think it's not too much to say that it's a dehumanizing system. <laughs> it's not a system that was built for your flourishing as a human person. Um, it was built for other things, other interests are at play there. And, um, and that's what the Lord's Day gives us, among other things. It gives us an opportunity to opt out. I would love for us to all to think about opting out, you know, of some of those things more generally. But at least on the Lord's Day, 24 hours, you know, you get 24 hours that you can opt out. And I think that'll do things to us as people. Good. Um, anything else before we move on? All right, we've got stuff to cover today, so let's jump into the first commandment. So last week we talked primarily about um, God's law and the role of God's law, the goodness of God's law, the way in which it is given to us, um, not as a way to sort of earn our righteousness or our goodness before him, but actually um, it's a, it, the law in the Old Testament is all about love. It's all about what it means to love God and love your neighbor. We talked about how um, we actually need the law uh, because we don't, in and of ourselves, know what it means to love other people or to love God. If we just try to say, you know, if you just tell someone, well, just love your, I mean, you know this as parents, right? You know, just love your sibling. Um, well, what does that mean exactly, right? Um, it turns out that that needs definition um, um, pretty quickly. 
uh, what it means, you know, and, and, and this is where the Ten Commandments come in. They say loving your neighbor means things like not taking his property, not, um, you know, breaking your marriage vows, uh, means things um, like not uh, doing violence to one another, those kinds of things. And so um, there, there begins to be a, a broader expansion of what love is um, through the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. And this actually is God's gift to us um, and something that we would be wise um, to study and to meditate upon. I made this comment last week, which I really think is important for us to think about as a church, that um, I really do think that the, the way in which we view the Old Testament will um, have a significant impact on our Christian lives. I think one of the errors of the modern American church is that um, it's pretty much all New Testament all the time, um, either explicitly or implicitly. And I really do think that um, many of the weaknesses of the American church today are, are related to that um, either explicit rejection of the Old Testament's value or just kind of an implicit overlooking of the Old Testament. Um, because the Old Testament is so, well, there's so much of it to start with, right? Um, you know, it's like three quarters of the Bible. Um, and, and it's there that we really see the foundations for what Jesus and the apostles build on. And we can't, we can't learn from Jesus and the apostles without going to their source material. In many ways, the New Testament is a commentary on the Old Testament um, and an, an unfolding of it. And we need, to, we need to be skilled in all of God's word, um, not only the Pauline epistles or something like that, in order to, to really f- live fully orbed Christian. I would argue you can't even read the Pauline epistles correctly if you don't know your Old Testament, um, of course. Um, so, so just some things to think about there. Um, so jumping into the first commandment today, so we're just going to cover these commandments week by week. Um, first thing I want to say is just a note about how the Ten Commandments are numbered. Um, we, are, of course, are going to follow the, um, the, the typical traditional um, Protestant and Reformed designation, um, which is um, that the first commandment is you shall know their gods. The second commandment is um, you shall make no graven image or bow down to it and then go on from there. Um, it's important to say you may see other numbering systems um, out there. Roman Catholics and Lutherans um, both um, uh, number the commandments differently. They, uh, they actually combine the first and second commandment into one. So you shall have no other gods and you shall make no graven image or bow down and worship them, um, that image. That's one commandment. And I c- you can kind of see exegetically some reasons for that because there's this rationale that's given. Um, after the second commandment, because the Lord your God is a jealous God, um, and, and that really does form a kind of rationale, as I'm going to argue today, not only for the second commandment, but also for the first. Um, so the way that <coughs> the Roman Catholics and Lutherans end up with ten is that they combine the first two, so they've only got nine now, but then they split the tenth. So they say, um, uh, you shall not envy your neighbor's house, ninth commandment and then you shall not envy your neighbor's wife or his um, property or his uh, servants. That's the 10th commandment. So they, they split what we say, you know, don't, not envy, I'm sorry, you shall not covet. Um, they, they split the covet um, commandment into two, essentially. Does that make sense? Is the way they end up with their numbering, which I don't think is a great exegetical move at all. Um, <laughs> I think those th- that's rightly lumped together in our Estimation. So it's just something interesting to think about. Uh, the, the Bible does wor- refer to the Ten Commandments in other places, um, and, but it refer- it's interesting. It refers to it as the Ten Words, um, not necessarily commandments. It's just debar is the word that's used there, which is just a, a Hebrew word that means word. Um, and so one way, I think, creative way of we could number the Ten Commandments would be the prologue, which we're going to start today, 
Um, I am the Lord your God who called you out of the land of Egypt and the house of slavery. That, that, that in some ways, maybe that is, in a sense, the first commandment. I think that would be an interesting way. I'm not going to teach it that way, but I'm just saying that would be a possible way that we could combine the first and second commandments into one um, and then have that prologue as a, as a sort of positive commandment, an identity uh, marker for us. Just something to think about. It's just interesting that, you know, there's nothing in the Bible, right, that tells us exactly how we need to separate these commandments into, um, into ten parts. So, but we are going to just follow the traditional, um, probably, pattern that you're familiar with if you grew up in the Protestant church, um, which is um, separating those first two commandments and holding the tenth commandment as united in one. Any questions about that? I don't know actually I don't know why that difference exists. Maybe one of some of you do. Interesting. Yeah, no, that would be it. Okay. Yeah. Yes, there might be some some iconoclastic sort of emphasis that's happening there, in the context of the Reformation. Yeah, that's certainly possible. Yeah. Okay. So, what do we learn from the pro? I'm going to read Exodus two and three first, um, which is the introduction and then the first commandment. Um, and we'll talk about it for a minute. I am the Lord your God, or I am Yahweh your God. That's how the Ten Commandments begin. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, or literally in the Hebrew, before my face. No other gods before my face. And of course, this is happening in the context of the tabernacle um, being built. It's going to be built, you know, just about 15 chapters later or so um, in Exodus. And so, um, Part of what is being said here just like explicitly is you're going to have this tabernacle that's set dedicated for my worship. Don't you dare bring any other gods into my tabernacle, right, and pollute your pure worship of me in that way. Um, that's, that's certainly like the contextually the very first kind of application. We can talk it's going to be much broader than that, um, but that's, that's uh, sort of a directly what's being talked about here. And, of course, that would be a problem for Israel in different ways, um, the pollution of the worship of God. So what do we learn from the prologue before we jump into the you shall have no other gods before me commandment? Um, I think the prologue is really important for us as we come to the Ten Commandments to read it and to understand it, think about it. Um, first, we learn God's identity um, and our own identity, that he actually is the one who defines these things. And it's within the definition of that those dual identities that the law is given to us, which is really important to say um, that the law happens um, here Certainly believe that the law is binding on all human beings, um, but it, the special gift of the Israel and now the church is that it is given to us in the context of a covenant relationship that has been established by God. And so it is actually within the context of that covenant relationship that we understand uh, the law. We read the law. It's not just some sort of abstract thing, uh, but it's something that's personal. Um, we learn God's identity and our identity. Um, our God is not just God in some generic way. Rather, he is Yahweh. He uses his personal name here that he gave um, to Moses and to others. He's the God of those 
whom he brought out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is how God uh, defines himself. Um, uh, Calvin says God adorns his divinity with sure titles and so fences us in that we may not rashly contrive for ourselves some new God. Um, And I think this is a really fascinating thing. Um, We think about um, the ways in which, you know, our culture talks a lot about God, right? Um, Or the divine or, you know, and, and it's very important to say that that's not how Christians talk about God. Um, Christians talk about a God who has done particular things, a God who has defined himself in history for us. He is the God who made heaven and earth. He is the God of um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God who called Israel out of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Um, he is, in the New Testament we find, um, the God, as, as Paul defines him, he's the God who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, right? That is his identity. That is who he is. Um, he is the God who has acted in history in these ways. And I think this is actually really important for us as we think about um, how we talk about God with others, right? It's not actually our goal as Christians just to get people to believe in God, right? Some sort of divine being out there. Um, and we should say that people who just quote-unquote believe in God are not actually necessarily brothers and sisters in Christ, right? That, that something more is required. Uh, believing in, uh, trusting in, entering into personal covenant relationship with the God of Israel, the God um, of the, who is the father of Jesus Christ, is uh, what we're inviting people into. And I think it's very important in our culture to think about that. And even for ourselves, to, to not lapse into sort of just thinking about, well, I have a relation with God. You know, well, what do you mean by that? You know, you don't just have a relationship with some divine power. Um, you have a God who, is, who has defined himself for you, and it's in that defined covenant relationship that you relate to him. And that's certainly what he's conveying to Israel here. Um, this, this prologue also shows us that God's law is set in a context of his steadfast love and mercy, um, his grace, in other words. Um, that, that, and this is something one of my seminary professors would emphasize a lot, and it's a good sort of catchphrase, which is um, that Exodus comes before Sinai right? Exodus comes before Sinai. So God does not show up when the Israelites are in slavery and give them the Ten Commandments and say, now you're on a probationary period for, you know, a year, and we're going to see how you do with these Ten Commandments. And if you do well, then I will deliver you um, from slavery, and I will go to war for you and, and you know, bust you out of here and defeat Pharaoh and, and, and pull you out. And that, that's not what happens. I think there's actually some evidence to think that Israel was pretty sinful um, in uh, her slavery to Egypt. That's probably part of the reason she was enslaved, um, was not just because of the wickedness of Pharaoh, but because um, she had neglected even the, uh, the traditions that had been handed down to her um, from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, of course, as well. Um, and so the, the important thing to say is that it is in that context of Israel's being in slavery, being powerless, and perhaps even being rebellious in particular ways, Um, that God reaches out and snatches her. All she does is cry out to him for help. She just says, help me, right? Um, And and Exodus 3 says that the cries of Israel reach the ears of the Lord, and that's why he acts. It's not because of their righteousness. It's not because of their law-keeping. It's because they asked for help, and he had made promises to do so. And so he pulls them out of slavery. And it's after he has pulled them out of slavery that he establishes this covenantal relationship with them as a people. Um, which so, so Exodus comes before Sinai, um, which is a really obviously important thing for us um, to think about in terms of our own 
corporate relationship with the Lord and individually, right? God did not pluck you out of your slavery to sin and death and the fear of death and to Satan um, because you did such a good job of showing your worthiness and your purity. Um, rather, he does that for you graciously. He delivers you from those things and then graciously gives you his law to tell you how to live um, in light of the deliverance that you have experienced. Um, and that's the context of the law um, for us as believers as well. Um, and then finally, it def- this prologue defines God's authority over us. God says to us, I am Yahweh, your God, right? He doesn't ask. He doesn't say, I, I brought you out of slavery, and now um, I would like to invite you to make me your God, um, you know, to, to, to select me among the other gods of the ancient world. Um, as your God, he says, no, he says, I am Yahweh, your God, right? You belong to me, is what he is saying. Um, actually, that's why I went into Egypt and brought you out, was so that you would be my a treasured possession, as it is put in um, Exodus 19, the chapter right before this, right? That he um, has, has borne them out on eagle's wings um, from Egypt, um, that they might become his treasured possession, that he might possess them as his people. And that is going to relate really closely, I think, to Um, particularly the first and second commandments, um, God's jealousy, his desire um, to have these people be be his and belong to him and the way that he deals with things when they reject him and they wander away. Um, Paul puts it this way in Colossians 1. He says to the Colossian believers, he says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And biblically speaking, this is a much better way to think about how salvation works than sort of modern, you know, some strains of evangelicalism where it's like, well, the pastor's going to stand up there and he's going to say, you know, y'all should consider becoming Christians because Jesus died for you and um, won't you please, you know, accept him um, as your savior. Um, The Christian, if you read Acts, right, the way they do evangelism, they say, uh, you may not know this, but you have a king. Um, His name is Jesus of Nazareth. It's surprising because he was crucified, um, but God raised him from the dead and um, that's proof, actually, that this man has been appointed by God to judge the world, um, including you. So what are you going to do? Like, that's basically, that's evangelism in the book of Acts, right? It's very different. Um, it's a proclamation of a kingdom that has a king, um, and you get to be a su- loyal subject of the king, or you get to be a rebel against the king. Those are your options. Um, and the time is now, right, to decide which side you're on. Um, and I, I think that's, I think it's a very different way of conceiving of the Christian life, um, the church, um, what it means to have a relationship with God, and I, th- I think we'd be much better off using the kinds of terms that the Bible uses, um, where, like here, the, he says, I am the Lord your God. This is who I am. I, I am your God, um, despite your op- opinion about the matter. It's a, it's a matter of how you're going to relate to me in the context of that relationship that I've established with you. Um, and, of course, this... Um, Calvin puts it this way. He says, we are captivated to embrace the lawgiver, (laughs) which I think is a wonderful phrase, right? We are made captive um, by God um, to embrace the one who gives the law. So, and this is, this is the way New Testament talks too, right? I mean, Paul says, I'm a bondservant of Christ. I'm a slave. I'm a doulos of the Lord Jesus, right? I call him Lord. I am his doulos. I'm his slave. Like there's a, uh, and there's a very sense, real sense in which God has delivered Um, Israel out of Egypt, um, out of slavery, not so that they can just do whatever they want, um, but so that they can be 
his servants so they can be captivated by him, um, made his captives and living in a different way. Um, as the inestimable theologian Bob Dylan put it, right, you, you've got to serve somebody, right? <laughs> you've got to serve somebody. Um, and uh, I think that's what is, what is happening here. Um, uh, you might think you don't have to serve somebody. You can just do whatever, but you've got to serve somebody, right? It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. Um, there's a lot of theology in that statement. Um, and, of course, this is how the Heidelberg talks about our relationship with Christ, right? What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I'm not my own, that I do not possess myself, but I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, right? Um, it is not an option to possess yourself. Um, you are going to be possessed by someone. And um, the hope of the Christian faith is that we are possessed by God in Christ Jesus, um, that we belong to him, body and soul, life and death. So that's, that's anyway, I think it's, there's a lot going on there in that prologue. Any questions about any of that or comments before we move on to the commandment? Yeah, Joe. Yes. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. 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 No, that's a great point. Right. 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 He's saying you've got a plethora of options here in um, in uh, Cana in Canaan or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's that's exactly right. Yes. Yeah. One more comment, and we'll move on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What are you going to do about that? Yeah. 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 I, yeah. I, I would really, I just wonder how, if we did evangelism in the way the book of Acts talks about it, how that would change um, the power of our evangelism, um, the way that we even think about our own faith. I think it's something worth considering. Um, we're not, we're not offering a religious option to people that we hope they will choose. We're declaring to them an announcement of a king. Um, and yes, they will have to respond to that in some way, but it, it's, it's not as though it's just sort of like, well, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a selection you can make if you, if you want to. All right, let's talk about the first commandment. First commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And of course, this commandment means far more than just literally forbidding the worship of other gods. Now, it does do that, of course. And Israel would struggle with literally worshiping other gods in many ways um, throughout her history. Um, but certainly we can say that, um, that, that it means far more than just that. Luther in his small catechism says that the first commandment means that we must fear, love, and trust God more than anything else. I think this is a really, really good short um, definition of the first commandment. We must fear, love, and trust God more than anything else. It has to do with the totality of God's claim on us as his people. 
um, that we must fear him, love him, and trust him more than anything else. And um, that's much harder to do, right? It's, it's hard. It's hard to do that, to fear and love and trust God more than anything else in this world. There is much competition um, in each of those areas, I think. Um, things that we are invited to be afraid of, things that we are invited to uh, love, um, things that we are invited to put our trust in other than the God who made heaven and earth, the God who delivered Egypt out of slavery, the God who raised our Lord Jesus from the dead. Um, but that is what the first commandment requires. Calvin says the purpose of this commandment is that the Lord wills alone to be preeminent among his people and to exercise complete authority over them. In forbidding us to have strange gods, he means that we must not transfer to another what belongs to him. Um, and Calvin defines what we owe God as one adoration. We're to adore him. And this gets to the love, right? We're to fashion our hearts for him alone. And we're to trust him. Um, we're to be like children with the father who trust him completely. We're to um, have invocation for him. We're to pray to him, right? We're, he is the one we're to ask to save us and help us and deliver us. And we're to give him thanks that that covers the gamut in terms of what we owe God in the first commandment. Um, Calvin says, this means to contemplate, fear, and worship his majesty, to participate in his blessings, to seek his help at all times, to recognize and by praises to celebrate the greatness of his works as the only goals of the activity, only goal of the activities of this life, um, which I think is a wonderful, just Calvin just gets it. it is, there's a comprehensiveness to this relationship that God demands of us. And again, it's not something he comes and offers. He says, um, if you don't do this, it is rebellion, it is sin. Um, this is the claim that I have on you uh, because you belong to me. You owe me um, your fear and love and trust of me more than anything else. And if you, if you don't do this, um, you're actually, you know, you're not just struggling, quote unquote, or having a hard time, like you are sinning. I think that's something we really need to wrestle with. That's, that's what the first commandment is saying, right? Um, that, that to, that to, Trust, fear, or love anything above God is a sin against God. Um, it is an act of rebellion. And I think we just need to be, and that, again, I'm not, you know, I, I sin in this way, to be clear. Um, right? um, so I'm not condemning anyone here. Um, there is grace for sinners, for all of us, good, good news. But I think the, the language we use matters, right? Um, we should not just sort of excuse people who, who, you know, when we fall into these things, say, well, it's hard to love God above everything. Well, yeah, but to not do so is sin. Um, to not do so is unrighteousness. Um, and we, we should also not be afraid to talk about that. Um, Heidelberg Catechism answers, what does the first commandment mean with this answer? It says that on peril of my soul's salvation, I avoid and flee all idolatry, sorcery, enchantments, and invocation of saints or of other creatures, um, so that's sort of like the explicit things that are prohibited, right? Um, and it, it's added some things beyond just the idolatry, right? Sorcery, enchantments, invocation of saints or other praying to saints or other created beings. And that I rightly acknowledge, here's the positive thing, the only true God, trust in him alone, with all humility and patience, expect all good from him only. I think that's a really interesting clarifying. All right, expect all good only from God, him alone as the source of all good. And love, fear, and honor him with my whole heart so as to rather to renounce all creatures than to do the least thing against his will. 
Um, it's total submission to the Lord is what's being talked about here. Uh, John Frame, that contemporary theologian I mentioned last week, reformed theologian, he says in his book, Doctrine of the Christian Life, which I would continue to recommend to you if you want to invest in a sort of deep dive in Christian ethics or the Ten Commandments in particular, he says the forbidding of literal polytheism is the narrow meaning of this command. The forbidding of any competition at all with the true God for our allegiance, obedience, and affection, so very similar categories, fear, love, and trust, um, Luther says, um, Frame defines it as allegiance, obedience, and affection, is the broader meaning, right? That there's no competition, there's no rivals unto God in our hearts for those things. We are to recognize from the heart that God is Lord of all things and that therefore he will tolerate no rivals. This commandment requires a personal confession, one of covenant allegiance. And that is really what the first commandment is all about. It's about covenant allegiance. I love the way um, that Frame puts that. And from the heart, God is interested in this is, right, Jesus, friends, you know this, I'm sure, but just to say it, did not have this spectacular innovation of, um, religion in the first century when he said God cares about your heart right I mean Jesus did say that but that wasn't like some new thing right Um, Jesus did do some new things but saying that God cared about the hearts of his people was not a new thing that he did Um, the Old Testament was always concerned about the heart it was never just concerned about outward formalities or whatever it was always concerned about the heart I'll get you in a second I got you I got you Um, that's something that was You know, if you read the book of Deuteronomy, um, that Deuteronomy is the great Old Testament book of the heart and the importance of the heart to the Lord, being captivated by the Lord in your heart. Uh, Frame goes on to say, the first commandment of the Decalogue is first of all a demand for exclusive loyalty to God. I think that's a great way to think about the first commandment. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is another way of stating the law of love. Deuteronomy 6 says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That is essentially the positive expression of the first commandment. Um, uh, First commandment is don't have any other gods before me, positively stated, you shall love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And I think an an example of this, and this is rooted in God's jealousy for us, just something we have to wrestle with if we're gonna understand the first commandment rightly. Um, Exodus 34, this is after, of course, Israel has her initial sort of rebellion um, in the, the making of the golden, uh, golden calf and uh, God is going to destroy them and then he doesn't because Moses intercedes and then God in Exodus 34 reestablishes his covenant with the people and this is what he says. He says, take care. He says, I'm going to drive out the people in the land of Canaan and he says, take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go lest it become a snare in your midst. Right? Don't make a covenant with them. You have a covenant with me. Tear down their altars, break their pillars, cut down their asherim. For you shall worship no other god for the Lord. And that it didn't come through in the copy and paste I did there. Um, the Lord there, of course, is Yahweh, all caps. For Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. And you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons to whore after their gods. Um, This is what the first commandment is about. It's about the Lord your God is jealous for you. And if you 
put anything before him in your life in terms of fear or love or trust, it is a kind of adultery, right? It has a, that kind of, it is that kind of breaking um, of covenant with God. And of course, that is the image that is used all throughout the Old Testament for Israel's spiritual apostasy, which is always first and foremost a violation of the first commandment. It's adultery, it's spiritual adultery, because the Lord your God is a jealous God. And I think, I really think this is something we need to wrestle with. Like, do we think of God as being jealous for us? For, like for you in particular? For your love, for your loyalty, for your trust, for your attention? Because I think the Bible says we should think of God that way, that God has that posture towards us, that he is jealous for us, that he is like, just to pick a random metaphor, a husband, right, um, with his wife um, that he's going to pursue. And, and it's important to say it is okay for husbands and wives to be jealous for their spouses, right? Now, of course, we can talk about how that can become sinful and controlling and whatever. Um, but God doesn't jealous in that way. And it is actually a sign that you are loved if someone is jealous for your attention and for your affection and for your heart and for your trust. Um, you should want your spouse to be jealous of you in that way. And if they're not, you know, that I don't, you know, I'm not going to, you just might want to think about that. Um, it's, it's something that matters. Uh, it's a good thing in marriage um, for your spouse to feel this way about you. And this is the way that the Lord feels about his people. And that's something I think all of us would do well um, to think about, that, that God is actually jealous for you as a husband is jealous for his wife, that that is the way he feels about you. Um, even when your, your affection, your loyalty, your trust is drawn in different directions. And I understand that none of us likely have, you know, a, a shrine to, to Baal in our closets that we're tempted to bow down to um, and worship when we are afraid at night or something. Um, but there are things, right? There are things that you're tempted to love and trust and fear uh, more than God. And we need to wrestle with that. And I, I think this is something that in the life of the believer is, this is what it is like actually sanctification this is what god i just want to give you this frame for thinking about your life like if you are in christ god is going to call you to keep the first commandment and because he's given you his spirit he's actually going to make it happen like that's what sanctification is and so all of your life one way to view your life is that god is slowly stripping you of other loves of other fears of other places that you trust in for security and hope. I think that's actually a really good way to think about what God is up to often in your life. Because in many ways, that's the fundamental thing that he is up to. Because none of us do this perfectly or even close to perfectly. Um, but the trajectory of our lives is one where God is drawing us further and further up into himself and deepening our love for him, which means other things have to die right? And this is how Jesus talks about it, right? Other things have to die, you know, cut off your hand, you know, um, lose your life in order that it might, you might save it. Like, there are other things you're going to be tempted to love, and they have to die in order for
for God to draw you to himself. And this is actually the story. This is a, this is a picture of what the Lord, I'm, I'm very confident, is doing in your life if you belong to Jesus. He is training you slowly over time to love him above all things. And, um, and it's painful at times, right? It's, well, always in some way, it's painful. Um, but the way of the cross is the way of life and peace. Um, it is the way of goodness. It is the way of hope, even though it's painful. So I just want to give you that paradigm to think about your life and the things that God is doing or has done. That I would, I would encourage you to say, this is what the Lord is doing. He is training me to keep the first commandment, um, to keep it um, for him, to have my heart be his alone. I think that's a really helpful thing. And I think actually Revelation 2 and 3 is a really interesting application of this principle, um, that kind of jealousy. You see that with Jesus as he writes to those churches in um, Revelation 2 and 3, that he is calling them away from other loves and to himself. And those churches are not struggling with idolatry in, the, in a literal sense, right? They're not worshiping uh, the gods of Rome or something. Um, but, but they are struggling with their affections, with their trust, with their fears. And Jesus is calling them like a jealous husband back to himself. So that's a, a place that you could look to think about this more. Another resource I'd recommend is uh, a wonderful uh, work uh, <laughs> that is probably one of the most wonderful works outside of the scriptures. Um, the Confessions of St. Augustine. Um, this is what the Confessions is about. Um, I have a quote here um, from Augustine, but it's all about the, the, the story of the Confessions is the story of love and how God um, brought Augustine to love himself above other things, um, how he broke his love for other things for himself, um, and how um, the temptation um, that exists to love other things in and of themselves um, to have our loves disordered, right? To love other things above God. And it's, I mean, if you've never read the Confessions, I recommend the translation by Chadwick, the Oxford edition, I think it's great. But just read it. Like, it'll change your life. Um, the Confessions will change your life. And they're, they're basically a commentary on this. You shall have no other gods before me. Um, and Augustine working that out and his, this describing that experience for himself. And really, it's the story of every Christian, his story. All right, there's a bunch here in terms of Westminster Confession, larger catechism. I want to read this so that we hear it. Um, and I think you'll see that the way the larger catechism defines the first commandment is very consistent with what I've been talking about. So the duties required in the first commandment, according to the Westminster Larger Con Confession, are the knowing and acknowledging of God to be the only true God and our God, and to worship and glorify him accordingly by thinking, meditating, remembering, highly esteeming, honoring, adoring, choosing, loving, desiring, fearing of him, believing him, trusting, hoping, delighting, rejoicing in him, being zealous for him, calling upon him, giving all praise and thanks and yielding all obedience and submission to him with the whole man, being careful in all things to please him and sorrowful when in anything he is offended and walking humbly with him. So that's the, those are the positive things required in the first commandment, our catechism says. And that, like friends, this is a great list to take home and spend some time with this week and really considering your life in an evaluative way, like, this is what God requires of me. This is what he made me for, to have this kind of relationship with him. 
Is this what my relationship with him looks like? Where, where are there places where I'm falling short? I would sincerely encourage you to consider doing that um, this week. Uh, what are the sins that are forbidden in the first commandment? The sins forbidden in the first commandment are atheism and denying or not having a God, idolatry and having or worshiping one more gods than one, or any with or instead of the true God, the not having and avouching him for God and our God. So actually, if you, you know, if you, like, and this is important, like, being outside of Christ is not just a, a thing we should feel sad about for people, but it's actually a sin, right? It's a sin um, for people to not have the true God as their God. The omission or neglect of anything due to him. And what does he own? <laughs> he owns all things, um, to be clear. Um, required in this commandment, ignorance, forgetfulness, misapprehensions. I mean, I think this is fascinating, right? This, our catechism says that ignorance of God's, what he's requiring of you is actually sinful. Like you're required not to be ignorant. Um, forgetfulness, that's not an excuse. Um, misapprehensions, false opinions, um, unworthy or wicked thoughts of him. Bold and curious searching into his secrets. Unworthy and wicked thoughts of him. I think that's really interesting. Like the Psalms give us a way to lament and complain to God about our lives and the things that we want to be different. But I think the first commandment says we need to be very careful. Like we, and certainly the spirit of our age encourages us to say, well, you just need to be honest with God, you know? And you do need to be honest with God. But you also need to be careful because you, the last thing you want to do is imply that he is not good and loving and kind and perfect in every way. Um, certainly you can ask him questions and you can use the Psalms and the ways that they model speaking of God, but you, you should be careful um, when you're frustrated with what God is doing um, because it is certainly possible, uh, we believe, to have unworthy or wicked thoughts of God. Um, and just because they're actually the way you feel doesn't mean that they're okay. Um, just, you know, I just think it's something to think about. Because the spirit of our age says, well, most important thing for you to do is to be authentic. And the Bible says, no, the most important thing for you to do is to be obedient. Like, <laughs> and it's great when those things line up, right? <laughs> but, uh, but obedience is more important than authenticity um, in your relationship with God. Um, uh, so bold and curious searching into his secrets, so trying to get above the line, right, in, in ways that would be sinful. All profaneness, hatred of God, self-love, self-seeking, all other inordinate or immoderate setting of our mind, will, or affections upon other things, right? Just, just being too wrapped up in other things can be a sin, is what we're saying. Um taking them off from him in whole or in part, vain, credulity, unbelief, heresy, misbelief, distrust, despair. Despair, friends, is not something that we can do with God because it implies that God is not good or loving or powerful. And I, again, I, friend, believe me, like I have done this. I'm a sinner as well. I have despaired um, in relation with God at times. But it's important for us to name that as not just like, oh, you're struggling, but I, yes, you're struggling, but you're also, that's a sin to despair in your relation to God because it implies that God is not 
loving and good and kind and your God. Um, and we need to be thoughtful about how we think about these things. The despair is something to repent of, is what we're saying. Encourageableness, right? Not willing to be corrected by God. Insensibleness under judgments, right? Not paying attention to what God is doing in your life and his judgments. Hardness of heart, pride, presumption, carnal security, tempting of God, using unlawful means, trusting in un- in, and trusting in lawful means, carnal delights and joys, corrupt, blind, and indiscreet zeal, lukewarmness, that comes straight from Revelation 3, and deadness in the things of God, estranging ourselves and apostatizing from God, praying or giving any religious worship to saints or angels or any other creatures, all compacts and consulting with the devil and hearkening to his suggestions, making men the lords of our faith and conscience, slighting and despising God and his commands, resisting and grieving of his spirit, discontent and impatient at his dispensations, charging him foolishly for the evils he inflicts on us. That's something to think about, right? I've done that. Charged God foolishly for the evil that he's inflicted upon me. I mean, it's just good to think about these things, right? That these actually, that can be a sinful thing that we do. We're tempted to do. And ascribing the praise of any good we either have, we either are, have, or can do to fortune, idols, ourselves, or any other creature, right? Anybody other than God. Um, Anything good in our lives. All right, so that's a pretty, two pretty comprehensive lists, and we've got to wrap up. Um, If there is one question... You had a hand up before, Jeremy. Was it something you wanted to follow up on? There are That's great. I I think those are good thoughts. I affirm them. Let me pray for us as our kids are coming in. Father, thank you for the first commandment. Thank you for the way that you're jealous for us. I pray you give us wisdom to consider the meaning and significance of this commandment in our lives, um, that we would be drawn to love you, Father, above all things, um, through and with and in union with your Son, who is our model, our example, and indeed our sacrifice and our salvation um, for all the ways that we fall short um, in this way. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.